This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Her name is Sarah Nguyen. She is the founder and CEO of Nguyen Coffee Supply, the first ever Vietnamese-American and woman-owned importer, supplier, and roaster of green coffee beans from Vietnam. On a mission to transform the coffee industry through diversity, inclusion, and transparency, Nguyen Coffee Supply has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Vice, New York Magazine, New York Times, Forbes, Fortune, and honored with the 2019 Star Chef's Rising Star Award. Early January 2020, Imbibe Magazine featured Serenian as one of the Imbibe 75 people, places, and directions that will shape the way you drink in 2020. Sarah, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, what a kind introduction. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, you're such a badass. You just want to put that out there right now, and you're a badass. Okay? <laughs> well, all right. You guys are just really ending my year strong right now. I need all the, the positivity I can get right now. Thank you. <laughs> so walk us through your, your journey, Sarah. Like, What was your childhood like? How did it shape who you are today? Yeah, I mean, it's so many to start. So, you know, I was born and raised in Boston, Mass. My parents, like many, many Vietnamese immigrants and refugees in this country, were part of the movement of folks called boat refugees, uh, which means they escaped Vietnam after the war by boat. Um, and my parents didn't meet until they arrived in the U.S., but they had similar journeys. They both escaped by boat, um, took them a few months before they arrived at a refugee camp. Um, in Hong Kong, and then they stayed there for a few years before they were sponsored to come to the United States, Boston specifically, where they settled, and that's where I was born and raised. Um, so growing up, you know, I think for a lot of first-generation um, children and immigrants, um, lots of similar experiences of, like for me, growing up in an immigrant household, I definitely felt like different at a very, very young age. Like I felt like my culture, my parents, like, um, limited English skills, you know, our food were all like differentiating factors. And at that time, growing up in the late 80s and 90s, they weren't like cool factors. Like nowadays, it's like super cool to be Asian and super cool to like rep your culture. Mm-hmm. But like in the late 80s and 90s, it, it, I never felt really proud to rep my culture. Everything I felt like it was a source of shame or embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Um, so that definitely just shaped a lot of my you know, my journey growing up as a Vietnamese American in Boston. Um, and, you know, there's so many pockets of that time that I could go into if you ask more specifically, but I would say my journey in, in having pride in my culture um, really changed in high school when I joined a youth organization called the Coalition for Asian Pacific American Youth. We were a social justice oriented youth activist organization that worked 
worked to organize community, we organized rallies and conferences and public demonstrations. And I also, during that time, I met my mentors who helped me shape my critical consciousness, right? And so that was kind of like my awakening. It was like maybe becoming woke before woke was a word, like it was conscious back then. Um, but all of that really sparked my entire life's mission. From there, you know, I applied to UCLA Mm -hmm. um, as an Asian American studies major, because I was so passionate about, about learning more about my community, about deepening my connection to the community, and also about community organizing. So then my journey took me to California, where I studied at the University of California, Los Angeles, double major in Asian American studies, and also world arts and cultures. And it just kind of goes on and on and on, but I'll pause right there for any other questions. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And so, you know, growing up in Boston, you know, how did you feel in terms of like your Asian identity? Were there any instances where you felt like, you know, you didn't belong? For a lot of Asians, especially in America, they often feel that, you know, when they go back to Asia, they don't feel like they belong, but also in America, they also don't feel like we're they like belong. a unique group yeah. of Asians now. It's like we don't we're not Asian enough to be Asian in in Asia. Mm -hmm. We're also like not American in some ways. So it's yeah. how you feel about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, I think like within our lifetime, I think for like the millennial generation, right, the folks who grew up late 80s, um, early 90s, um, we live in such a unique time because I feel like we experience both ends of the spectrum. So for me growing up, you know, in late 80s, early 90s, like I struggled with my Asian identity because there this was pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-Instagram, right? all these platforms that now actually have an increased level of representation. Like if I was a young kid, you know, growing up with the internet, I could find reflections of myself through YouTube. Right. But I didn't grow up with the internet. We, I was like literally the first class to sign onto Facebook, right. The first or second class. And so that's just a marker of like my experience. So I grew up with like traditional television, like no Netflix, like where there was like one show the same hour every week and you had to wait for that show to come on. You couldn't just binge watch. So during that time, when we talk about lack of representation today and lack of diversity, it was even more extreme back then in the 90s, right? So growing up in the 90s, I didn't have any sources of like, I didn't have role models, right? I didn't see them on TV, definitely didn't see them in the movies, definitely didn't see them in the magazines, and I didn't have the internet. So it was, you know, like, like it was hard growing up as a Vietnamese American and feeling so different, feeling alienated, um, growing up in the public school system, feeling like your peers don't understand you, your teachers don't understand you, you know, you, they don't know how to say your last name. You know, if I opened up my mom's like cooking at lunch in the cafeteria, that was also another source of embarrassment. It was really hard, I, I feel, growing up as a first-generation Vietnamese-American um, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And so, and you know, I think for so much of my childhood, I just felt really invisible. And I felt like people didn't see me and they didn't understand me because there's so much explaining to do. And this was when, again, referencing the 90s, there was... There wasn't this level of collective consciousness that we have today as a culture society where conversations around fluidity and like gender identity and like and racial consciousness consciousness it's so norm today but back then it wasn't normal what was norm back then was all asians were chinese right that was a social and political context 
within I, which I was living in. Like everyone thought we were Chinese, like the Ching Chongs were like, those thirds was just common everywhere, right? There was such a lack of nuanced understanding of racial identity, let alone Asian American identity, let alone Southeast Asian identity, let alone refugee immigrant identity, right? We didn't have those nuanced layers. Race as a concept back then in the 90s was very dichotomous. It was just black and white. And of course, like now, now that we're like in 2020, like so much has changed. And I'm like, and as I look, reflect on where we're at as a culture and society, how we're able to talk about all these nuanced, like intersections of identity, I feel so proud to be part of like this generation of carbon space. Um, but definitely growing up in Boston as a first generation Vietnamese American, it was a very different time and definitely very challenging. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And so, you know, we understand that you were also doing freelance work in New York City as a film writer and a uh, filmmaker and a writer. And so can yeah. you talk about, you know, that experience and how you were able to make your way from Boston to New York City? Mm, yeah. So actually, it was more like it was Boston and then to L.A. for undergrad. And then also I worked in L.A. for several years. And then it was L.A. to New York City that yeah. brought me there. So at that intersection, that was definitely kind of like a fork in the road in my life. It was um, 2012. Mm -hmm. I was working full time um, in student affairs. And I just basically had this feeling where I wanted to live my creative career. Because even though I worked in student affairs, I worked in nonprofits. Um, I've always also been an artist. I've always been a creative person. I've been a writer. I've, you know, I came up and spoke a word poetry. I love storytelling through the medium of poetry, writing, performance, film, because I was so hungry for more representation, right? Right. So in 2012, I just had, you know, kind of like a moment in my, in my path where I wanted to pursue my creative career and I wanted to go full, full on into my, my journey as an artist and as a filmmaker and as someone who was amplifying stories of our community. So from there, I decided to quit my job um, in LA and I moved to New York city and that was the last time I had a nine to five job for another company. Right. So since I moved to New York city in 2013, I, I was a full-time freelance creative working in journalism, writing, and also documentary filmmaking. I did that for six years, um, before I started when coffee supply. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And how did you feel during that process? We have a lot of members in AH and obviously trying to make the jump from their nine to five into entrepreneurship yeah. full time. And yeah. so what were you doing in LA as your career or your nine to five? And did you know that, you know, you wanted to make that jump eventually or were you, you know, kind of feeling it out and were a little bit scared? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. Um, so when I was in LA, I was working full time as the director of the writing success program at the University of California, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. So I worked in the World Student Affairs. I basically ran a writing program working with undergrad students, helping them to develop their critical thinking skills and their writing skills through the writing process. And while I was working full time, I actually had multiple side hustles, which I think is really common with our generation, right? I, 
I would work full time nine to five, but then once I was off the nine to five clock in the evenings and on the weekends, I was dedicating all that time to building my creative career. So I was doing things like right making press kits and you know publishing my blog. I was like really big into blogging like in the early two thousands. Um, you know I was touring. I was traveling for like you know gigs, um, working on chat books, working on you know um, poetry books, working on videos like. I really treated treated my side hustle as a, as a second job, really. Like people have two shifts, right? I treated it as my second shift, and I, I did do that for a few years, knowing like I, I did do that for a few years with the intention of I'm going to make that switch eventually, right? And I didn't quite know how or when, but I just knew that I was working towards that moment because. I think for me in my heart, I know that I'm not the type of person that thrives long term in a structured environment um, like a nine to five. So, and that's one thing I want to kind of mention too for people who like are thinking about making that leap or switch from their quote unquote nine to five to an entrepreneur freelance life. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneur life is not for everyone, right? And I think it takes a certain type of person at DNA to want to do it and to be able to do it, right? And I also want to say there's no right or wrong. I know many people who are built for nine to fives, right? They thrive in a structured environment. They thrive in being a part of a company culture or being a part of forwarding a mission, right? And so I don't, I just want to clarify that. I don't think like being your own boss or being an entrepreneur is like less, is less or more, better or worse. It's just everyone's DNA is different and people thrive in different environments. And so with that being said, I think being an entrepreneur, it's extremely difficult. Um, and I think the idea of like quitting your nine to five and like making that leap into being a full-time entrepreneur, it sounds really sexy, but it, and it sounds really sexy and it's very, very difficult and very hard. Um, and I, I think people need to really be honest with themselves. Like, do they want to be a full-time entrepreneur or do they want to have a successful side hustle in business, right? How much is financial security important to you, right? Are you able to have a luxury to not have steady income, right? Do you have family obligations, right? Do you have to support your siblings, right? And I think all these ideas and questions are things that we don't talk about enough as like how you make the jump, right? Um, So with that, I just want to put that out there. And But for me, it's like I am that type of person. Like that's in my DNA because – and so for me – in making that jump, it was, uh, um, it did require planning. I, I was, I was planning and preparing for years mentally and emotionally to, to walk the path of an entrepreneur that comes with a lot of insecurity and stability. Right. And I was also preparing myself financially. I stacked as much as I could while I had my nine to five to offer myself a cushion to transition. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that when people talk about that leap of faith, it sounds like very spontaneous and like mm-hmm. out of nowhere and maybe a part of it is, but I think it actually comes with a lot of planning and a lot of intention mm-hmm. to be able to do it well, right? Like, do you have a cushion? Do you have um, savings? Like, what is your runway with your savings, right? Like, how many months do you are you allowing yourself to be a freelance entrepreneur, to build your client list, to build your revenue streams, right? Mm-hmm. I think it comes with a lot of planning, a lot of intention and that, um, you can't be successful if you don't have a plan and an intention. Absolutely agree with that statement. You know, entrepreneurship is sexy right now because everyone's like talking about it. Mm-hmm. You see people on Instagram wearing nice suits and airplanes and everything. Like, <laughs> oh, 
I don't have to sacrifice six months to a year of my life to achieve these goals. You're like, all right, this is such Hollywood stuff, you know? It's not realistic yeah. at all. Yeah. Like, like, take a step back to, like, your Asian-American experience. It's, mm-hmm. like, one of the stories that we hear over and over on our, on, on our podcast, you know? Your story is one of the reasons why we exist. It's because we keep hearing these stories from our friends, mm-hmm. especially in college, too. And people feeling like they don't have a place in this world. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing is... On top of that, we feel like even though we're Asian, we don't quite fit in with Asians in Asia mm-hmm. or Asians in America, which is really unique. You know, we're like our own subcategory with our own mental problems that only only we understand each other. Like mm-hmm. I, I talked to my mom about this before too. She's like, "What are you talking about? You have all these opportunities in America. Mm-hmm. What are you complaining? You're like, yeah. you just don't get it." Yeah. <laughs> you know? no, and their their excuses, you know, you understand English, you can speak it, you know, very well. Like, why is it a problem for you? And every time you bring it up, they always said like, "Oh, we come to America, we can't speak English, we still made it, and mm-hmm. yet you're complaining." Yeah, what's wrong yeah. with you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but going back to your your entrepreneurial um, explanation, it's completely accurate. You know, like it. It takes so many years of preparation, even while you have a job, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as jumping right into it, because there's a lot of things that you don't know. You know, they could become, they could come from a wealthy family, the dad Mm -hmm. or parents could be entrepreneurs that groomed them for years. You know, no one, the thing about entrepreneurship is is that no one ever does it alone. Mm -hmm. You need a lot of support from your friends and family, and especially yourself to get through all the all the crap you, you do you deal with on a daily basis where you wake up and you're like, why am I doing this to myself? Like I just had an easy life going on my nice vacation, but yeah, I still choose this life because it's meant for people like us, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely agree. And so, you know, talking a little bit about Nguyen Coffee Supply, how mm-hmm. did the inspiration come about, and what made you, you know, want to achieve this goal with your brand? Yeah, I mean, there's so many motivations and inspirations behind when coffee supply um I would say it kind of it really started around 2016 when I was noticing in New York City and really around the country Vietnamese food and culture was really having its moment right um not that it's new to any of us who's lived it um but I guess in mainstream American society Vietnamese food and culture was kind of having a moment emerging the mainstream where people were exploring things beyond pho and banh mi they were exploring ban sale and like ban bail and like it's like oh what's that right and it was just like a marker of where we are in this society and on a similar wavelength I noticed that Vietnamese iced coffee as a concept and as an idea was also becoming very trendy I started seeing it pop up on cafe menus like non-mom-and-pop like restaurants right like a like a specialty coffee shop menu right it would be like their regular express program a matcha chai and a Vietnamese iced coffee and so that was an indicator and a signal to me like oh there is this growing level of awareness around cafe sera but then literally every time I try their coffee and I even ask them what's in this coffee, they'd be like, oh, it's a house Ethiopian or it's a house Colombian. We asked, we could then smell to it. And that signaled a problem that I wanted to solve because I was like, you know, this is wrong on so many levels, right? One, it's miseducation to the consumers. You're calling something BB-sized coffee and it's just simply not. 
Two, it's wrong to the farmers in Ethiopia and the farmers in Colombia who actually produce this coffee bean and you basically render them invisible because you want to hop on the trend yeah. and call them Vietnamese iced coffee, right? Three, um, it's wrong to Vietnamese farmers and producers who um, do not get to benefit from this transaction of using a trendy word like Vietnamese iced coffee, right? Mm-hmm. It, I feel like it's wrong on so many levels, right? And I think that you know, but, you know, sometimes people, maybe they just don't know better or they don't have this level of insight or thought or consideration. So that's where people like us, like of our generation, we come in to educate and we come in to say, hey, actually, I appreciate you trying to leverage and share our culture, but let's, if you really want to do it, let's do it the right way, right? Like, let's connect, let's learn, let's build, right? And then as I looked into it, I actually was really interested to learn that um, you know, in my research, I would look up all of like the craft roasters in the country, all the specialty coffee brands. And there was so much excitement around this concept of like single origin, right? Um, specialty coffee, direct trade. And there was um, in the coffee industry, there was a movement for transparency where we went from like the Maxwell's, the Folgers, the Dunkin's, to Starbucks, to now like to Blue Balls and Stumptowns where everyone wants to talk about who the farmer is and where it's coming from. And I thought that's, that was great. This, this idea of transparency for the industry was really wonderful. But I noticed that none of those values were actually being applied to Vietnam. Right. Right. If anything, the moment the conversation got to Vietnam, they would just dismiss Vietnam as like, oh, actually, no, they're not a part of the special community. Oh, mm-hmm. no, Vietnamese coffee is cheap. Or Vietnamese coffee is instant coffee. Or Vietnamese coffee is not specialty, right? Mm-hmm. And then my question was like, but why not? Right. Because when we think about specialty coffee as an industry, as a culture, we think about how Ethiopia has a huge booming specialty coffee industry now in Colombia and Brazil. Specialty coffee did not appear out of thin air. It didn't happen on its own. And it definitely didn't happen with just the farmers on the ground. It was a collective investment of people all on the supply chain who wanted to make things better. Right. Whether it was a buyer or producer or distributor saying, hey, farmer partner, hey, producing partner, if you do X, Y, Z to your crop, if you improve it with these, you know, organic practices, if you use this biofertilizer, if you focus on hand picking it rather than just the machine shaker, you'll get a better harvest and you can sell it for a higher rate. You can make more money and then we sell it for more money, right? That is the collective, the global collective investment of specialty coffee as an industry and a culture. However, no one was willing to have that conversation with Vietnam. They immediately dismissed it as they're gross, they're cheap, they don't have, there's no room for them in specialty coffee, right? And I was like, well, of course there's not going to be any room for them if we don't invest in this, in this movement, right? Mm-hmm. Then that's really where the idea for One Coffee Supply came up because I just felt like there was such an extreme injustice happening on so many levels of representation, of information, of culture, and just of agriculture, and just the farming industry in general, where I was like, well, someone needs to step in and change this. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we, you know, where really the the idea and like the motivation for when Costify started. Mm-hmm. And I thought if all these other coffee companies were just gonna ignore us and write us off, then we're gonna step in and change the conversation. We're actually going to create a channel and a pipeline to start importing specialty coffee into the U.S., roasting it in the U.S. to be a part of the conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Yeah. And since then, the feedback, as you know, you all have seen, has just been so wonderful. Like people are, we're changing perceptions now about Robusta coffee. We're changing perceptions about Vietnamese coffee. Um, we're bringing more culture and diversity to brewing culture in the U.S. because we're elevating the feed and filter. But also what a lot of people don't see is we're literally changing the landscape of Vietnam because we're able to help more farmers convert from commercial coffee production to premium specialty coffee production, which is which leads to economic advancement for their lives and it also leads to more long-term cultural, I mean, long-term agricultural sustainability for the land, right? Mm -hmm. So it's been really exciting um, doing this. On top of all of that, in addition to just bringing really bomb-ass Vietnamese coffee beans to the U.S. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it's you're so cause driven. Yeah. We love it. You're just you're, you're more than a brand. You know, you yeah. see your your vision, you feel mm -hmm. your passion right now. Like, okay, I don't I don't know what I want to do today, but I want to drink Vietnamese coffee. Yeah. <laughs> wow, Brian, thank you. We're here. <laughs> you definitely feel your passion a lot, and yeah. Yeah, I think your brand represents more than just a company. It represents mm -hmm. your personality and what you believe in, and that's so important for companies nowadays too. You yeah. can't just exist as a company now. You know, what is your, what is your, your why behind your company? Why do you exist? All these things matter. And I feel like you capture that really well with your branding. And on top of that, you capture it really well with who you are as a person too, because that reflects into your company. Um, so really commend you for that. There's something that I do want to bring up as well. I mean, we want to recognize you for raising $90,000 for undocumented ah! workers like we saw that article we shared it on our facebooks like we want to make sure that people recognize what you're doing and that's amazing you know and thank you so much for that thank you so much that's so thoughtful thank you brian um and i i also just i always insert i i have to say i did not raise it alone i helped raise it sometimes headlines get sensational i had to <laughs> DM the editor, DM the writer, like, can you please change that caption? Like, come on, like, um, but yeah. You're being too modest here. <laughs> <laughs> You're being too modest here. Um, but yeah, that was really cool. That article came out this week. That was like so cool, and um, and it's, it's crazy because like that was kind of a while ago, you know. If mm -hmm. actually it was, it felt like so long ago. March felt this year has just been so crazy. It yeah. felt like so long ago. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that was really cool. I think I think at the heart of everything I do at the end of the day, it's just I just want to like be here for our community, you know. And like you were saying earlier, like like we were both saying earlier, like oftentimes we feel like we don't belong. Right. We feel like there's no place for us. We feel like people don't understand us. And for a fact, we don't have enough people looking out for us in this country, right? Whether it's the government or leadership, we just don't have enough people looking out for us, whether that's the Asian American community, the Vietnamese American community, the immigrant community, the marginalized community, underrepresented communities in general. And so I feel so strongly that like, we have to look out for us, you know? And that's why I think even like what you do with the Asian Hustle Network, like you all just create such a powerful space for us to look out for us and you know the way you cheer everyone community on and just like affirming us like it's just so beautiful and wonderful and powerful and you know I'm so like honored and and happy to be in community with you all because mm -hmm. we really are looking out for us and while making space for everyone to be seen and heard 
and to thrive, you know? So thank you all for doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for all that you do. And I love what you said about, you know, transparency. I think oftentimes, especially in the food business or the, or, or the beverage business, they just hop onto the latest trend without really, you know, telling people what exactly goes on in the background. But a lot of people now like consumers, they really want to know the truth. Right. Mm -hmm. And transparency is so important. And you talk about that a lot and it benefits both the consumer as well as the company. And so I guess my question is like, what can we do as consumers and supporters um, to like increase, you know, the visibility of Vietnamese producers and help them remove from poverty? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And, And I would just broaden that question as well to what can we as consumers do to increase transparency right? and just like ethical practice in general. Um, I think what one is continue to align your buying power with your values, right? Like money talks and the only way like companies both small and big are going to change their practices or build in more social responsibility into their company mission is if consumers say it matters to them, right? And I think that consumers can show that with where they place their dollars and also by speaking up and holding brands account and companies accountable or asking more questions, right? Um, even if it, if it, even if the consumers asking questions about, Hey, where's my seafood from? Hey, where are these coffee beans from? It just says coffee beans on the packaging, but like, actually, where is it from? Right. Or like, Hey, where's my, you know, where's my meat from? I think, this idea of transparency, how it relates to purveyors and producers in all industries, including seafood, including coffee, including, you know, fruits and vegetables. I think consumers getting into, you know, the, the behavior of always asking where, where did literally let's trace the supply chain and where did it come from? Because coffee, Vietnamese coffee industry. So Vietnam is the number two largest producer of coffee in the world. And many people don't know that because of lack of transparency. Because their coffee beans basically get rendered invisible once it enters other ports, it enters other products, and it's no longer Vietnamese coffee, it's just coffee, right? Which, you know, it just doesn't hurt anybody if it actually said Vietnamese coffee or coffee from Vietnam, right? How does that hurt anybody? If anything, it, it, was an, it would have been an opportunity for people all around the world to build this cultural connection and this appreciation for Vietnam as a major contributor to coffee experience around the world. And so I think if consumers in general just started asking, hey, where are these coffee beans from? Or like, what coffee beans do you use? Or like, where's your fish from? I think it would really help to improve conditions all along the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Yeah, that's a really valid point too. And that's so important mm-hmm. when you hear that being Asian Hustle Network, like we heard, like, mm-hmm. how are you sourcing your stuff? How are you doing yeah. your certain things? You know, and yeah. we learn a lot more managing the community than we think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I want to switch the focus back to you, Sarah. Like, how do you find a balance between your personal life and your work life? It seems mm-hmm. right now it's so merged. And I think mental health right now is such a huge topic that we, we need to talk more about for the Asian community, at least. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's a very taboo. You know, even for us posting mental health events within the community, people will show up to the event, but they will not comment underneath the thread. So we can't tell if they're interested or not. <laughs> you know? It's so taboo. Wow. Wow. We want to talk more about that and shed light on it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for creating the space again, you all, to 
had to talk about mental health and talk about issues that are taboo, right. quote unquote taboo in our community. Um, you know, for me, I would say that I, sometimes I say like, I feel so grateful that I started this company in my thirties than in my twenties. Cause in my twenties, I did not have a good work life balance. Right. And in my twenties, it's like, I was really like, I kind of fed into that idea of like hustle porn. I was like, I'm working so hard and I'm hustling all day and all night and I can sleep when I die. Like, that was my 20s, right? I thought that made me, I thought that validated me as a hustler. When in reality, it's, it's a sick way of thinking about success. And I think it's totally driven by this capitalistic mindset of like, you got to go, go, go by any means necessary, crush everyone and just end up at the top, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm now that I'm in my 30s, um, and I think this is part of the preparation that I've done as an entrepreneur, like the mental and emotional preparation, right, um, of how to be mentally and emotionally sustainable for the long fight and the long haul or the marathon of entrepreneurship, right? Because entrepreneurship is unstable for many reasons. It could be financially unstable, but really we never talk enough about how it could be mentally and emotionally stable if you don't have the right tools or the right support systems in place to, to really endure, right, the journey of entrepreneur. So I would say that Going back to the question of mental health, I would say that for me, I have been very committed to building um, my mental health practices and tools for many, many, many years. And that comes through a process of self-reflection, um, getting coaching, getting mentors, getting advisors to constantly reflect and unpack and deconstruct and talk and then build tools and for how to process and how to think through and how to just move forward, right? Mentally and emotionally. And we're not even talking about tactically yet or strategically yet, right? This is purely mentally and emotionally. And so it is work and it's like years of practice and it is still a constant practice. Um, and so for me today, some things that I do to maintain my mental health is, um, you know, I stay committed to mental health. So that's everything from, um, you know, I work with, two different coaches that are kind of like my therapist, you know, I engage mentors and advisors. Um, I start my mornings with stretching, deep breathing, light meditation. Um, I, I incorporate daily intentions into my work, right? Where I'm literally sitting down and writing my intention for the day. I also, you know, as much as I can, I try to write a gratitude list, right? Where I'm literally sitting down and writing things I'm grateful for the day and doing things like making a gratitude list and writing my intentions. It basically sets my mindset, um, into a framework of abundance and gratitude and positivity rather than scarcity and, um, insecurity and, um, you know, um, pain or loss, whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, small things, very, very small. Um, but it's an intention and a commitment to being mentally healthy and mentally positive. Mm-hmm. And th- thank you, Sarah, for sharing that. Yeah. It's, it's so important because I feel like half your entrepreneurial battle is with yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're like, I can do the work, but mentally I'm not there today. Yeah. <laughs> you know? There are many days like that. Yeah. yeah. And it, entrepreneurship is a very lonely journey mm-hmm. in some ways. And I do want to reiterate this too. Like no matter where you are, with your entrepreneur journey, you're always going to feel stress. You're always going to feel like you have that imposter syndrome. You're always going to feel a sense of doubt, you know, and it's crazy hearing that from high, high level achievers like yourself and other people 
but it takes take time to find that balance too. Yeah. You know, yeah. it can't be can't just be glorifying hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, yeah. we're in a different generation now. Like, you know, back then the generation was like, you know, it's not good to work with your friends and family. It's, it's you're gonna ruin your relationships. It's not good. But nowadays it's like I can't work at you unless you are my friend or family. Like we think about like our parents' generation, you know, their conditions and their context are so different from ours, right? And we talk I like to think I, I like to talk a lot about like the abundance mentality. And I think our parents just simply were dealing with so much scarcity. And it's not that they were like, you know, intentional about be, having a crabs in the mentality they were literally operating from scarcity as refugees and immigrants and I think that was their reality right and so uh, and their reality allowed us to have our reality where we have more abundance and like more resources I think more room for like collaboration which is so cool about our generation mm-hmm. um, and I, I will say one more thing that I've been practicing a lot for for balancing um, you know the personal the work and just my mental health in general is I've I've been practicing a lot of setting boundaries and saying no. Mm-hmm. And and I've been working on this since I, since like my late 20s of like how to say no, how to draw boundaries. And it's still a challenge and it's still an active commitment. Mm-hmm. But I will say over the last few years, I've gotten better because I'm flexing my boundaries muscle more, right? So I've gotten better mm-hmm. at identifying what's a priority, what's not a priority, um, how to say no without feeling bad and guilty, right? How to set boundaries, right? And I would say... I've gone like much better at setting boundaries saying no, but it's actually really helped me maintain my mental health um, because I'm not stretching myself too thin and I'm not um, overextending myself. Right. I'm, I'm cause every time I say no, or and I set a boundary, I basically carve up more time for myself. Um, otherwise, you know, in a previous version of myself, when I was younger, I would just say yes all the time or I would feel bad. I feel guilty. Say yes. But it, it actually just ended up like hurting me because I wasn't able to like, preserve and replenish myself if I was just constantly like extending mm-hmm. I'm well, glad you didn't yeah. say uh I'm glad you didn't say no to us oh thank you Sarah yeah it's amazing hearing you say that just hearing you talk about you know all of these mental health tactics that you use it, it shows that you've grown so much as a person you know and I love that you're just you know exemplifying that Exactly. And, you know, all those habits, it's, it's all habits that like successful people have, you know, setting boundaries, making sure that you're making time for mental health, mm-hmm. practicing gratitude, you know, all of those things. Yeah. I'm kind of curious too, Sarah, like what does 2021 look like for you? Because this podcast will be released as the first episode of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what does 2021 look like for you? What are your goals? Uh, oh, wow. It's, uh, it's so crazy. I feel like I feel like we've all been drowning in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> like, especially for us right now with like the holidays, I'm just like, just drowning and trying to crawl out and get some space. Um, I haven't thought too much about it, but I will say, um, you know, we definitely have a lot of big plans in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, and really the goal is just to, just to continue growing Wincock Supply, continue growing our influence um, in the industry and in culture, continue growing opportunities abroad and here for us to be leaders in the industry so that we can continue to shape culture and society and so that we can continue to be in a position 
a decision making and influence that we can be a part of creating the world and the culture that we want, right? Mm-hmm. Where where the younger generation won't have to feel how I felt growing up, which was invisible, unseen, and unrepresented, right? right. And I think with my mission with Wincoxify, the more we can grow our mission with Wincoxify, the more we get to be a part of creating this world where people feel seen and represented, right? Mm-hmm. So in a nutshell, in a brief version, that's, that's our goal for 2021, to continue building and continue growing so that we can be, continue to contribute um, to create the world that, that we, that we want, that we want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Yeah. Very amazing goal. And so I feel like in my opinion, we just see so much authenticity within you and your brand. I'm very curious, you know, like how do you ensure that you and your business and, um, you know, like make sure that you stay so authentic and what it stands for on a consistent basis? Um, oh, that's a great question. How do we ensure that we stay so authentic and what we stand for? I think for a lot of businesses, they feel that, you know, they need to fluctuate or, you know, change their values or change the way they, you know, frame their mission based on what other people think. But, you know, Brian and I, we just see you so authentic and so true to yourself and just very curious, you know, how you stay so authentic all the time. Interesting. Oh, thank you so much for that reflection. I'm very happy to hear that. (laughs) Um, You know, I would say, I think with any business, it all stems from the leadership, right? So if you have a toxic work environment, the leadership is probably toxic themselves, right? If you have a positive work environment, it stems from, so it all stems from the leadership. So the first thing I say is you have to be right with yourself, mm-hmm. right? And that means doing the work to know who you are, to know your voice, know your values, know what you stand for, know what you believe in, right? And that is this internal work that I've been doing my entire life and I stay committed to. That was with, you know, my work, you know, with youth activism, with being an Asian American studies major, with community organizing, like with being quote unquote woke, right? Which is what everyone understands today. It was this commitment to developing my critical consciousness and, um, you know, my voice and identity as an Asian American, Knowing who I am has allowed me to remain authentic to this day. And so that's the first thing, right? You need to get right within, you need to know who you are. And then from there, everything else just kind of stems almost naturally, right? Um, But the next step is with the business, I think more tactically is, I think it's very, very important to get down on paper, like, what your mission is, what your values are, you know, what your company culture stands for and what your ultimate goal and objective is. Right. Um, it's in my head. And I think as we're thinking, as I'm thinking about growing and like our team's growing, it becomes so important to put it down so that every time someone enters the company, it's there. Right. Mm -hmm. And also for me, you know, as I think about, as I encounter challenges or dilemmas, if you just roll back to your North star, right? Your compass, like your why that's already written down. It just makes it so much easier to make decisions. Right. And, um, yeah, I think that's how I continue to steer the ship. Just, just remind, if I ever get confused, I just go back to our North star, mm-hmm. uh, our mission and our why, and that I make all decisions to basically move us forward towards that goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, Absolutely Great. powerful. It's, it's super important to have your why in place um, because that is an North Star organization. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's the reason why you guys exist. You know, if you ever diverge from that, you know that you have it written down somewhere. Mm-hmm. The original intention is so super important. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and very curious, you know, from what we understand, you know, we know the inspiration behind you in Coffee Supply. And after that, after that inspiration, you went to Vietnam yourself to go to a relative's farm. And that's how it all started. And, you know, there goes New England Coffee Supply to be, you know, um, created. And so how would an aspiring entrepreneur with no industry experience like you at that time start a business from the ground up? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say you got to start asking questions, right? When you don't have the answers because you don't have industry experience or any type of experience, start asking questions, whether that's asking Google. Google has been a huge support for me in my entrepreneurial journey, right? Asking questions on Google, asking anyone around you questions, asking your colleagues, asking your peers, asking your friends, asking your networks questions. And I think there's something to be said about not being scared to ask questions, not being scared to look stupid or dumb or not being scared to look inexperienced. Like you have to get over any type of ego you have here about not knowing or about being experienced and ask questions. That's something that I did from day one and it's something I continue to do and something that I think um, could be a first step to helping someone figure it out, right? And I'll break it down even more. It's, it's It's being very specific. For example, when I was like, learning, you know, if I didn't know how to like, maybe, if I didn't know how to roast, I'd ask my friend who worked at a cafe, hey, <laughs> how do you roast, right? Oh, this is how I roast. Oh, can I, can I shadow you, like, right? Oh, what's this, what's that? Hey, do you know somebody who teaches a roasting class, right? Oh, okay. It's literally like, like, I like to describe it as um, working on a puzzle, right? You, you, all you need to do is find that one next piece, then you lay it down. Okay. That question is answered, lay it down. And then you go look for the next piece and then you lay it down, right? You don't need to have the whole like blueprint, the whole plan laid out because it's just, unless you have someone who literally is handing you a blueprint. Um, that's the process of building business. You just tackle it one question at a time, one step at a time to get you just one step closer and one step moving forward. And I think as long as you just kind of break down your master vision, your dream into these really, really small manageable steps, as long as you're moving forward each time, even if it's like a detour to the side or you go off track, as long as you continue to move forward, that's all that matters, right? And don't worry about time. Don't worry about people around you, how fast or slow they're going, just worry on, just worry, just stay focused on your course forward and everyone's journey, everyone's path is going to be unique. And so really, if you just stay focused on taking a step forward each day, each moment, and again, detours are okay, breaks and pauses and pit stops are okay. But as long as you stay committed to moving forward and growing and learning, then I feel like you're going to be, you're headed towards success. If not, if, if you're not already succeeding. Yeah. That's yeah. a great analogy. I love that. Yeah. I really like that mentality too. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a common trait of successful entrepreneurs is don't be afraid to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, like I'm not going to think any poorly of you. You asked me a lot, a lot of questions, you know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. for everyone's benefit. And it really, reaffirms that person's knowledge of their industry and it helps you learn. Yeah. And I like your mentality too. Like, you know, just move forward, you know, mm-hmm. do a little bit every day to reach your goal. Like 
your goal doesn't have to be so gigantic that it scares you every day. <laughs> You're like, oh no, right, I'm overwhelmed, right. you know, yeah. break you down to sub steps because any, any goal can be accomplished to, to many steps, many steps, many days consistently. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And Brian, I just want to build off of what you said. I also want to add like in the process of asking questions, also just be open in the process of asking questions is very possible that some people will not answer you, right? Mm-hmm. They either won't answer you or they don't want to answer you. And that's okay too, right? Because we can't control what someone else does. But we can control what we do. So let's say you ask them a question and they don't reply to you, right? Keep it moving. Ask mm-hmm. someone else. Find it on the way, right? Because mm-hmm. I've asked people questions and they don't reply to me. Um, or I've asked questions or they kind of like dodge it, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the reason is, it doesn't matter. Whether they're too busy or they don't want to share, like that part doesn't matter. What matters is you keep it moving, right? Mm-hmm. Because I've experienced that. So I don't want you to think that, oh, if you ask questions, you get all the answers. Like it's not about that because people are coming from different places. But I think just practicing that muscle of not having an ego about wanting to learn is important. Um, yeah, because, you know, I've asked questions where people like don't get back to me or they don't answer or they dodge yeah. it. And like, to be honest, some, like, sometimes people ask me questions and I just, I don't answer because I'm either just too busy yeah, or I don't think it's the right like fit, whatever, lots of different reasons, but that's not important. What's important is that you're flexing your muscle of mm-hmm. asking questions, moving forward, overcoming an obstacle and not letting anything stop in your way. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely agree. And we just have to like put our pride away sometimes. You know, I feel like a lot of people have like a wall because they think that they can do everything themselves. But we that's, just that's the Asian mentality. Yeah, it is the Asian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, also like, it's such an Asian mentality, and I feel like my parents also like there's this like saying like kamunglam kamunglam letangai, right? You don't kamunglam. You don't want to burden them. Like, don't yeah. ask them. Yeah. Don't burden them. Right? That's definitely something that was taught growing up. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so for your personal goals, let's say in like the next five to 10 years, what would that be personally? Personally. Um, you want to travel the world. You wanna... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, so many, so many goals. So, so many, many goals. goals. <laughs> also, I feel like 2020 has just like sucked us into yeah. like, let's just survive this moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, personal goals. You know, I, I always say that my goal is is to my my I always say my goal is to achieve freedom Mm -hmm. and that's freedom to travel freedom to spend money freedom to give money freedom to create something right I think growing up you know in an immigrant household where there was a lot of scarcity we didn't have a lot of money we felt restricted I couldn't buy Oreos I could never it was too expensive we couldn't even buy the Ziploc bags, too expensive. It was always a phone and flat bags, right? Like there's a lot of like, you could not, or even like being a freelancer or just doing throughout my journey as a working professional, like not having enough money, right? I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. And, and it wasn't just like financial restraint. I, I didn't have the, the mental freedom to do stuff, right? I felt stressed. So when I say like my goal is to achieve freedom, it's just like, I just want the freedom to, to live without restraints and to live without limitations and to be able to do and create a world with like an abundance of resources and knowledge and network. Um, I think that's just like the ultimate goal. Yeah. yeah so I love that too. It's very abundance mindset. It is. <laughs> I don't want any restrictions. You know me, I hate limitations. <laughs> Amazing. 
And so, Sarah, you know, this has been an amazing podcast, just learning about your journey. How can and, our, and, yourself and yourself, and how can our listeners learn more about you online? And do you have any final remarks that you would like to share to the community? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I think definitely, um, if you're listening, you can follow our journey by following our Instagram page. It's at when off supply um it instagram is our number one social media platform so all of our updates and news goes out there um you can also learn more about us on our website when and do i have any final words um you know i just wish everyone a ha- happy and healthy year and you know i i just i hope that everyone continues to push forward in their dreams because our world is going to be a better place Mm-hmm. Um, with more with more people just bringing their own unique vision and flair and style to things. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for bringing your vision and, you know, being true to who you are mm-hmm. and being a part of the, you know, AHN community. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you too. Yeah, Thanks thank for you making so the world a better place. Yeah. Oh, thank you all for making the world a better place. And thank you for, you know, creating this community. I'm so stoked to be a part of it. And I, I'm, I really look forward to our journey together, both of ours shared moving forward. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you yeah. so much, Sarah. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.